Hi everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Books with Jen. This podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus, but we're back now. If you're new to this podcast, it's where I sit down and have a chat with authors and publishers about their work. Today I'm talking with Mike Carey, who is the author of The Girl with All the Gifts, which was one of my favourite books when it came out in 2014. Um, And I always describe it to people as Matilda meets The Walking Dead, which I think is quite accurate. Um, How this book came about is really, really interesting, um, and Mike also wrote the screenplay and he wrote the screenplay as he was producing the novel so it's a really interesting story as to how this story came about it's a story about stories and so I really wanted to meet up with Mike and talk to him about that because his new book which is a prequel to the girl with all the gifts called the boy on the bridge has just come out so we're going to talk about that as well and if you're listening to this on YouTube and you would prefer to download the episode to listen when you're out and about um, head over to www.jen-campbell.com forward slash podcast and you can download the episode there so yeah I will hand you over to past me talking with Mike at the Hachette offices. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So well, where do we start with this? It's quite exciting. So with, uh, let's talk about the girl with all the gifts first. Am I right in thinking, or did I get this completely wrong, that it was a concept for a film before it was a concept for a book, or did I make that up? It's actually a bit weirder. Even a bit weirder. Oh, I love um, my stories. Tell me, tell me the story. So, so it happened in stages. Um, Charlene Harris and Tony Kellner mm. do these wonderful themed anthologies, or they used to, every year. Um, and the theme was always something really banal and reassuring in every day, like family holidays or home improvements. And the brief was, write something dark and messed up, a horror story, (laughs) dark fantasy, supernatural story, with that theme embedded in it. Um, And I had said a couple of times I would love to um, submit a story to that. And then one year, they gave me a a really sort of strong nudge. And I said, yes, I would do it. And um, the theme was school days. So for it's a broad theme. For yeah, you. It's, a, it's a broad theme. And at first, I thought, well, yeah, there's got to be lots of stuff you can do with that. But my first two or three ideas were just like bad, really bad Harry Potter ripoffs. Okay. And so I put it aside for a while. Can you tell uh, us about one of those really bad ones? I'd rather not. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. We can not. skip over it. <laughs> um, but then, so I put it aside. And then I was in Norway for the Raptors convention. And I just woke up in this horrible hotel bedroom. Actually, it wasn't that bad a kind of sparse, cold, really cold hotel bedroom. And I had the idea of Melanie in my mind, the mm. idea of a little girl writing an essay in a classroom. And the essay is what I want to be when I grow up. But she's a zombie. Mm. She's one of the, uh, the undead, and therefore growing up is not an option for her. So that, was the, that, that image was the sort of, um, the sort of pebble yeah. dropped in the well. And I sat there in the hotel bedroom typing up what became Iphigenia and Alice, the short story. Um, wrote it in four days. I think I've never written a short story quite so quickly because it all just came pouring out. Sent it in. Um, it was very well, um, very well received. It was nominated for an Edgar Allan Poe Award. Slightly more mystifyingly, it was nominated for a Derringer, which is a mystery fiction mm. award, and it's not mystery. Although I guess there's kind of a, a tease and a reveal. Yeah. Um, and then I thought... It was very, very difficult for me to put the character down. It was difficult for me to put the world down. I kept thinking there's more to this. The short story ends when the base falls. The closing image is just Melanie and Sergeant Parks standing back to back and fighting while the rest of the base is evacuated. Um, And for her, for Melanie, this is a glorious thing because she she gets to protect and save 
her beloved teacher. Yeah. Um, and Parks, it ends with Parks saying something like this day just keeps on getting better and better. And he's saying it with bitter sarcasm. And Melanie says, yes, it is. <laughs> and she really means it. Yeah. Um, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I kept thinking I wanted to go back to it. Um, the trouble was I was contracted to write a completely different novel. Okay. And I had to go to Anne Clark, who was my editor at the time, and say, please, please vary out my contract so that I can do this. And at first she took a little bit of convincing because you know, she said, that's going to be really, really hard. There are so many other people involved. But then I showed her the short story and she said, yeah, okay, okay, mm. write, write that then. And at the same time, I was having conversations with an independent producer, Camille Gatan, um, about completely different projects. And the main project that we were working on fell through and I showed her the short story and she said, then let's do that. Uh, and Camille is just an amazing person, an amazing producer and an amazing person. Uh, and she got, she got us development money from the BFI. She got a sales agent on board. She got a director on board very quickly, Colin McCarthy, and mm -hmm. he was involved in the development. And so all of that was happening simultaneously with the writing of the novel. I was developing the screenplay and writing the first draft of the screenplay while I was writing the novel. Well, that must have been such a surreal experience for you. I suppose... Um because when I heard that you had written the screenplay too, I always get you know a bit nervous when books get turned into films. You're like, oh my goodness, what they're going to miss out. But then when you find out that the author has also written the screenplay, it's like the nerves go away. So you must have been very conscious, I suppose, of of how it would translate into film as you were writing the novel. And I guess that's that's unlike an experience that most most authors get. It's certainly unique in my experience. Yeah. I mean, I've done adaptation before. I've done yeah. a lot of adaptation. Back when I was writing uh, mainly comics, mm -hmm. um, I did uh, the adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, mm -hmm. um, End of Shadow, um, and I adapted the first Fantastic Four movie for my sins into comic book form. Uh, and I love adaptation because it's kind of like you, you strip the story down, you disassemble it, and you look at all the pieces and think about what they do and then you put them together in a way that works in a different medium. And it's, um, it's, it's great fun. It's, it's an analytical thing. It's much, um, I guess, more cold-blooded than when you're creating something completely from scratch. But it's really, it's really fascinating to delve into a story mm. from that sort of odd angle. Um, but, but here I was making two different sets of creative decisions, um, creating the same story in two different media mm. at the same time. Um, and in a, in a weird way, it just made it made the story space seem very immersive and very three-dimensional. You know, I was charting two different paths through this world, and each set of decisions kind of illuminated the other. Mm. So in the novel, I really wanted to do this um, multiple point of view thing, which I'd never done before. The cast of novels were all single protagonist, first person narratives. Um, the collaborations I'd done with Lynn and Lou. Uh, City of Silk and Steel, House of War and Witness were multiple point of view. So I guess I'd never done it before in a novel that was just mine, but I had yeah. done it in collaboration. And I wanted to try that, but I knew that that wouldn't work, or I felt quite strongly that that wouldn't work for the movie, that the movie had to be um, seen from Melanie's point of view throughout, that we had to discover the world entirely through her eyes. So that was a big difference. Um, in the novel, there are the Junkers, the survivalist, yeah. Refusenik, um, uh, bands of, of outlaws that roam across the landscape and, and are responsible for the destruction of the base kind of are the catalyst for the story but they don't, don't appear in the movie at all mm. because we, we, we discussed it back and forth quite a lot um, when we were in development for the movie and we realised that if you see those characters in a film 
you think you're in Mad Max. It actually starts yeah, to make an, yeah. it makes an implicit promise about where the film is going, and we weren't going there. Yeah. So we thought it would be a, a danger, really, that it might derail mm. the story, and we found a different way for the base to fall. And do you find that if you're writing, well, when you were writing the script at the same time, did the characters seem more real to you? And that's not to undermine characters in novels at all, but aware of who might play what, even though I, I know you didn't do the casting until afterwards. It, it, it's... It's a weird thing because I, I, I'm very bad at dream casting mm. and I almost never do it. Um, but I really need to know what the voice of a character is. Yeah. The, 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 the hardest and the most vital part in creating any character is how do they talk? Mm. Because if you know how they, how they talk, you kind of know who they are. Yeah. Um, and with Parks, when I was writing <laughs> uh, the novel of Girl with All the Gifts, um, he kept on slipping. Mm. Uh, and he kept on becoming a little bit American. I think because I'd seen so many versions of that character yeah. that were American. Um, and so in order to sort of put a pin in him and make him work for me, mm. I imagined either Sean Bean or Paddy Considine <laughs> saying his lines. So you did imagine Paddy. Okay, that's interesting because when the casting was announced, I couldn't imagine Miss Parks, but he was so good. Yeah, like, he, was he was so good. I, I think it's because I'd just seen him in Pride and I was like, I don't, I can't, <laughs> I can't see how this works. <laughs> well, my first experience of Paddy was in Dead Men's Shoes. Okay, so very so, different. So I thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was, that was a, a, good, a good sort of um, reference point. Mm. for parks but um yeah I, I i i didn't i didn't really try to imagine um specific actors voicing the parts but the 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 gestation for the movie was much longer mm. so you know, even after the novel came out yeah so we let's see the timeline so when did you start writing girl and when did it come out and then when the film when was that um so i would have started writing girl sometime in 2012 mm. probably quite early in 2012 delivered the novel in the spring of 2013 and we were still in development for the movie all the way through 2013 all the way through 2014 and we shot in the summer of mm. 2015 so it's it's a it's a much much more drawn out process um at times it seems endless yeah but uh, it did mean that i got to have um second thoughts about some scenes about how they would play uh and also, um, coming back to your question about casting, mm. once we knew who the actors were going to be, I got to revisit the scenes and tweak some of the dialogue. One, when I knew that Glenn Close was going to be Caldwell, mm -hmm. I started writing specifically to her. Yeah. I'm a, a huge admirer of her work. I think she's an amazing actor. And I started to think of, of her as Caldwell. I think, I think if you look at the book and the movie side by side, mm. the relationship between Caldwell and Melanie and the relationship between Caldwell and Justin o, plays a little differently yeah, I think in, so. in the movie and that's because of her it's because it was her yeah no I think she's brilliant I think anyone who doesn't think going close is brilliant is not someone you should be friends with because they're, they're questionable <laughs> people <laughs> um, and how did the casting for Melanie go because obviously she was I'm assuming she was an unknown before she was in that was that maybe the most exciting part it was the most exciting and also the most um, it, one of the scariest because mm. um so much depended on her. Um, she did need to be an unknown. Um, we, we decided quite early on that, that she would be an unknown. Um, we wanted to cast the net very the net very widely. So we looked at um, students from a lot of drama schools, but also from television workshops and from inner city programs of various kinds. Well, how old was she? She was twelve. Okay. 
Um, and she'd done one short film before, which was called Beverly, and she has a, a, a fairly small role in that as a protagonist's younger sister, um, looking very different with a sort of huge full afro. Um, we, when I say we, most of, the, most of this was done by Colm and Cammie. Um, I was sort of off to one side of the process. I didn't have much, um, and no, no sort of real decision-making power. Really, casting is something that happens between producers and sales agents and production partners. And it's yeah. kind of, it's very much an equation, working out a cast that will actually sell the film at a particular budget level. Um, they auditioned, they looked at 3,000 audition tapes, they live auditioned 500 girls, and they got it down to a short list of six. And this is where it gets to sound a little bit like a fairy tale. Mm. Um, on the Friday, um, at the, the end of the week before, they were going to do chemistry auditions with Gemma, with, with, uh, with, the, with the, the, Mel, the Melanie actress and Gemma Arterton. So on the Friday, three days before that, Colin got a phone call from a friend of his in Northampton who said, I've got three more girls that I'd really love for you to meet mm. and audition. And Colm said, no, we've got a short list, we're fine, thank you. And the guy said, as a favour, yeah. as a favour, please come. So, gritting his teeth, wishing very much that he could just go and be with his family for a couple of days, Colm made the journey up to Northampton and met the three girls, and the third of them, the last girl they auditioned, was Senya Nanua. Mm. Uh, and he was very impressed. And he emailed, um, he texted Cammy and said, we've got one more for the short list, sorry. Uh, and it was just really obvious, as soon as she got in the room, with Gemma Arterton when they, when they did the chemistry audition that they really clicked that, that um, she got the character but also she got that relationship really well and it worked really well together mm. um, and we offered her the part and you know the, the, the rest is history it, it's so much to ask of a young actor yeah. she's in almost every scene of that film mm. you know it's 110 minutes and I guess she's on on screen for 103 of them and everything stands or falls mm. by her performance Especially sometimes when she doesn't, I mean, she doesn't have a huge amount of lines, so it relies on her, like really her and her facial expressions and how she's looking at people. Even, I mean, often she's tied up. I mean, she's really limited in how she can express herself, and yet she still managed to do it so well. The, the, there, are, there are a lot of wordless moments that I really love. There's a bit where they're on the roof and Parks asks her to go and reconnoitre for them, and she doesn't say yes. She just flicks her arms up so that he can unlock the handcuffs. Yeah. And it's just, just a beautiful, a beautiful gesture. And there's the bit where she's looking at the poster of the cat. Yes. A little bit wistful and a little bit mournful because she's just eaten a cat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. You know what I love as well is when I went to see it is that it's a post-apocalyptic film, well, novel film, set in the UK. And I just love seeing all of these derelict, like, next shops. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's somehow just really, I don't know, you don't get to see that very often. It, it, was, um, it was amazing for me to watch that happening, to watch the, um, the, 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 set, the set dressing, the mm. building up of that world and the cinematography. And I think it's, um, in a way, it's another marked difference between the, the novel and the movie. That the movie, just by showing you that world, by making it so vividly present, a world where you're walking down a city street and there's a mature forest mm -hmm. growing up out of the asphalt, it kind of makes very, very clearly a point that is implicit in the novel, which is the point about you know, the world is going back, it's being reclaimed by nature. It doesn't need human stewardship anymore yeah. if it ever did. Um, I think there is a difference between kind of like seeing that world 
and sort of projecting yourself into that world and just reading it. Well, I think so, especially in the novel, because you're so inside Melanie's head. Like you see it, the world from her point of view, and why wouldn't anyone see it from Melanie's, you know, Melanie's point of view? Why would these kids be locked up in that way? And then when you can step back and see everything and the panic and the disorder, not that that isn't present in the novel, but it's so, it's it's so there and in your face and you can't escape it. I think that it makes more sense maybe it's it's scary you're just you're you're faced with what these very real decisions that these adults have had to make and how badly some of those have made those decisions yeah Yeah. um i think also it makes you more sympathetic towards the other characters too i i hated uh, well not hated but because you're so on melanie's side in the book you really have resentment towards a lot of other characters yeah you want Miss J and uh, Melanie to succeed. You do in the movie too. But um, yeah, I think that that is really interesting that you, you get more of a, you get a wider perspective, I think. Well, you, you mentioned the sort of the chaos and the disorder mm-hmm. and the danger. Um, the, the one scene that I'm actually in in the movie is the scene where the I didn't know you were in the yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I get a little cameo. Nice. Um, <laughs> It's the base, the scene where the base is attacked uh-huh. and overrun by hungries. I was one of the hungries. Um, <laughs> I bet that was fun. <laughs> and I got a nice on-screen death as well. Um, but it was it was fascinating because there were, I guess there were, there were several hundred extras, um, mm. z- zombies, hungries, and, and uh, soldiers. And we were the hungries, and we were told, okay, go over there. We split up into lots of different groups. Run from there to there, turn around, run to the corner of that building. When you see some people running back, you'll be off camera so you can safely turn around and run in the opposite direction. Mm. Join them and run and run back the way you came. It looked like utter chaos, utter um, just pure... Um, it looked formless. It looked formless and, and um, uncontrolled. But then at a certain point, I got to walk around behind the uh, the cameras to Video Village mm. to see what the what the feeds were picking up and what Colin was doing with the shots, and it all made sense. Yeah. And then, and then when it went into post production, that chaos is layered and layered and layered in. Um, so they 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 take uh, green screen shots and they drop additional hungries. So our our few hundred become thousands and wow. thousands. Um, they have fires in the distance and smoke drifting across, which mm. is all digitally added. Um, when bullets, when, when Melanie sort of comes out of the lab and walks out into the outside world, and the bullets pock the building behind her, all of those impacts uh, on the on the on the uh, concrete wall and on the grass at her feet are layered in afterwards. So it's chaos that is kind of like um, reinforced a little bit at a time until you have this rich tapestry. That is amazing. And it must be a pleasure, I suppose, as well, because you get it in publishing when you hand over your book and you're like, right, this is a thing that I have written, please turn it into a book. Um, and people work on the cover design and marketing people come in and say, we've had these ideas of how we can publicise it, et cetera, et cetera. So you have that passing over and watching people do their jobs. And But in film, it's this whole other level where you pass it over to someone, and as you said, the director, putting all of these extra layers in and just watching someone transform your work into... Um, something that you've had in your head for so long. I mean, something like that must be so amazing, yet at the same time absolutely terrifying. Was there anything that you were specifically worried about going into it that you thought might go wrong or might not translate well? Um, no, there wasn't. And I think the, the reason for that was because because Colin was um, uh, part of the planning process. Yeah. But basically, most of the planning was me... Colin, the director, Cammy, the lead producer, in a room, mm. um, sometimes with pizza, sometimes with Always alcohol, mm. um, 
just just thrashing it out beat by beat and arguing and arguing and brainstorming and brainstorming and I think by the time we got to the production um, end of things we all felt like we completely owned this story and we mm. completely knew this story and we all had exactly the the same sense of what it needed to be Colin said in an interview one time making films is great if you're all making the same film yeah and we were but it's quite clear you know if you look at something like well um low-hanging fruit but if you look at something like Suicide Squad mm. it's quite clear there that not everybody was making the same film no. uh, and that's you know one reason why it came out the way it did but I think we we had total confidence in each other mm. and the, 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 the other component of course um, although I didn't get to meet him until filming started was Simon Dennis the uh, the cinematographer the, the director of director of photography um, who again you know just uh, was completely in tune with Colin's vision and it's a uh, it's a very distinct vision, you know. It's, it's um, in a lot of ways a very low-tech film. Colin likes to direct in camera. Yeah. Um, there were hundreds of digital effects, but most of what you see in the film was real. Mm. The, the sets were were all built, or they were you know found locations. They were real locations. Um, scouting the locations was great fun. I, I was around for the tech recce, and um, that was amazing. Just going into a place like the guest hospital in Dudley, uh, which had been abandoned. Uh, I think 17 years before mm. and Christian the um, the designer said you know if I had to build this there's another half a million yeah. quid on the budget and now it's just here and we just walked in <laughs> walked in off the street it's like minimal set dressing a few leaves and twigs that's amazing well let's let's step back a minute then and go back in time so do you think that the reason the girl will give it and obviously you're working with great people on this film and it's all coming together very well but you've worked with people before a lot on projects because you originally started writing with comics um and obviously that's a huge it's a huge team of people coming in and lots of people coming up with lots of different stuff yeah how do you think that formed your basis for starting to write novels later on that's quite a big question it is a big question but um (laughs) It, it, it's one that I think about a lot because mm. when, when, I, when I started to write, which is in my teens, mm. I started trying to write novels um, and they didn't work. And the main reason they didn't work was because I had no idea what, what shape a novel had. I just thought of it as a thing made out of words. So my, my approach to it was write chapter one, yeah. have a cup of tea, come back, write chapter two, stare out of the window, play Sonic the Hedgehog, write mm. chapter three, rinse and repeat until you get to something that feels a bit endy and then yeah. write the words at the end. Um, so I was writing these things and convincing myself that they were novels and they weren't. Mm. They, they, they were utterly, you know, those shapeless bags of story. And uh, I would send them up to publishers and that the rejection slips would come back with a comment like, this would be great if it was a novel. You should try <laughs> writing it as a novel. You were like, um, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so then I started writing comics. After, after I got in through comics journalism, I did mm. reviews and articles for fanzines a lot. And then through that, I got into writing comics. And the thing about a comic is that it's a canvas of a very fixed uh, size. Mm. It's, a, it's a small size and it's a rigid size. And you've got to do your story within that. There's no, there's no run on. Yeah. If you run out of pages before you run out of story, you don't have a story. Yeah. So it focuses you on structure in mm. a very explicit way. You start to fret about, can I afford three pages for this scene? How am I going to do the transition from this to this without laying a lot of narrative pipe? Um, can I afford to have a, um, a splash page or a spread? So how do comics work? I mean, pardon my ignorance, but with... with- so there must be different series like some where you might come up with a concept yourself but sometimes when you're like writing an issue for a series 
do you form a storyboard first and pitch that or do they approach you with this is this is the general thing we need to get from this point to this point it it does depend on whether you're working on a franchise book or not Mm. if it's if it's your own book then you have a lot of autonomy when i was writing on x-men yeah um then I was using characters who were simultaneously being used in three or four other books. Yeah. And so there was lots and lots of communication, lots of um, editorial meetings, um, briefings about this is where the line as a whole is going. Occasionally when we were working on crossovers, they'd fly me over to um, New York or to Marvel West so that I could be in a room with the other writers and we could thrash it all out together, which was, you know, it was, it was a blast to do. Yeah. And I love those characters. But yeah, you've got to you've got to then negotiate. Can I do this? How does it fit in with the timeline? Mm. Um, can I borrow this character and then give them back in three months? <laughs> um, but basically, you, you'll submit a sort of pr- a prose outline which is fairly bare bones, mm. and then you're left to your own devices and you hand the script in. Um, there's relatively little oversight, more for franchise books than for creator-owned books, but relatively little compared to the the the, the, the TV and movie. Um, context is massive oversight the whole time mm. endless meetings where you're explaining to interested parties what you're doing and taking notes from them and so many people give you notes um, you don't get asked to do storyboards although I do storyboards for my own um, sort of my own convenience really when I'm writing a comic I tend to start by drawing mm. a, a really crappy little version of the comic and making the decision about framings and tra- decisions about framing and, yeah, yeah. and transition points mm in that form so that when I start typing um, a lot of the decisions have already been made yeah. and really I'm transcribing them it takes a lot of the uh, the pressure off and when I've tried to do it without going through that phase it's harder it's a lot mm. harder um, so at what point during doing the comics did you go back to novel writing it would have been around about 2004 mm. 2004 2005 um, so I'd been writing comics um, I've been doing nothing but writing comics for about five years at that point I'd stopped teaching yeah. uh, and was just living as a writer because you taught for what like 15 years or so yeah, yeah. yeah mostly sixth form and uh, adult returning education uh, FE mm. and then around about the turn of the millennium 1999 2000 that academic year I went on sabbatical and I never went back uh, and that was I mean, basically I handed in my res- resignation and my boss said I'm going to give you a sabbatical so that if you if in a year's time it's not working You've got a safety net, which was a wonderful parting gift, yeah, really. Yeah, that's very kind. Um, but I never had to go back. I made, made the comics, again, made a living out of the comics. And, and it was, it felt like a comfortable enough living at the time. It was, you're constantly sort of setting up the next job and the job after that and the job after that because you don't have, if you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah. But, uh, but I managed to keep at least one book going for the whole of that time. And then 2004, I think it would have been, uh, I pitched uh, the caster idea to Darren Nash, uh, who just moved from Shut Simon & Schuster to um, Little Brown, to Orbit. And he accepted it, he gave me a three book deal. And I started writing prose again. And coming from comics back into writing prose was very natural and easy. Because I'd, you know, I'd, I'd learned a lot about structuring story yeah. through writing comics. And I had the confidence to use the freedoms that prose gives you. Um, reasonably reasonably intelligently so I made a much better fist of it um, and, I, and I enjoyed it you know, yeah. I find writing, writing, writing novels is is crazy fun because you're creating the world entirely out of your own head um, because you have total control over the entire process a kind of vert- vertical 
freedom. You can get to chapter 20 and suddenly decide, I want to introduce this yeah. back in chapter 3 so that I can pay it off here. Mm. Uh, and you live with it for six months or nine months or a year and you can just change it from the ground up at any time, which isn't true of any other kind of um, creative endeavour that I've done. No, I don't think so. Have you ever thought about making The Girl With All The Gifts into a comic book or a graphic novel as well, like, later on? I have thought about it, uh, and, I, and I, I floated the idea to Cammy when we were working on the movie that um, it would be very easy to set up. Yeah. Um, and I, and I had a, an artist in mind. I thought Mike Perkins, mm. who at the time was doing the um, the adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand for, for Marvel, would make a fantastic artist for it. Uh, but Cammy said, let's, let's not do it now, because um, we don't have any control over the timing of that. And you know, since we're working on the movie, I think the movie has to be our central focus yeah. now. And then I never, never quite went back to it. But it would be, it would be fun to do. It, the comics industry has changed a lot, though, um, in the time that I've been working in it. And there is now this, this model, which um, I guess it was coming in around about 2007, 2008, and then it was spreading, and now it's everywhere, which is that your contract... Um, gives the publisher control over the uh, audiovisual rights. That you have copyright, but they have control. So um, typically, if you're working for DC, um, then Warner will have, will control those rights. And if anyone develops your work, it'll be Warner. Mm. Which is great, because it means you've got Warner in your corner. But it means you can't take it anywhere else, uh, unless and until the rights revert. And if if you're Marvel and it's Disney who has that... uh, that control and if you work for one of the second tier publishers like IDW, Boom, um, Dark Horse then they will basically be a production partner on any film or TV series that gets made um, so yeah it's it's uh, a tricky one to navigate it's a tricky one to navigate if you come in with a property that's already yeah. <laughs> a novel or a movie yeah. um, because they can't do that yeah, it would still make an amazing graphic novel though, or comic. It'd be so good. I would love to do that. Yeah, <clears throat> not least because I'd love to go back to the world again. Every every time I think I'm done with Melanie's yeah. world, I, I'd go back to it. Well, let's talk about going back because your new book is coming out very soon. It's probably out by the time this podcast goes up. It's called The Boy on the Bridge. It's very exciting. Thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> when did you decide you were going to revisit this world? Um. I'd been toying with the idea ever since the first book came out, out ever since Girl came out. We talked um, early on, me and my editors, uh, about a possible sequel, mm. and I realised very quickly that you couldn't do a straight sequel to The Girl With All The Gifts. I mean, you I mean could, we're not going to talk about why, because that would be spoilers, but I mean, yeah, it would be quite, quite difficult. It would be difficult, because, and it would, it would be, if you did it, it would be in a completely different genre. Mm. It wouldn't be a zombie story. Um, right. It wouldn't be post-apocalyptic. It would be, pardon me, it would be about the creation of something new yeah um, and the people who you know, re- readers who'd enjoy Girl With All The Gifts might not enjoy that sequel because it would just, just be a very very different thing um, but, it, but it started to I started to think about um, telling a story in the negative space of mm. Girl With All The Gifts telling a story that kind of um, picks up on details that were incidental to the first novel and comes at them from a different angle and uh, I eventually lit upon the um, the Rosalind Franklin you know, the, the, the massive mobile laboratory mm. that Melanie finds you know, abandoned in the streets of London in, in, in Girl With All The Gift it's kind of a Mary Celeste mystery 
uh, there's one dead body in the cockpit, which seems to it seems to be somebody who's who's committed suicide, uh, and no no sign of what became of the rest of the crew. Um, they surmise that the crew were eaten mm. by by, um, by the Hungries, but they don't know what the details are. So I just decided to tell that story, but also kind of to use that story um, as a way of dramatizing some other significant moments in the interactions between humanity 1.0 and the post-human post children, yeah. um, of whom Melanie is the, uh, the main representative in Girl With All The Gifts. So it's about that, really. It's about that first encounter. Um, Did you find that difficult in the sense that if you're writing about this plot point that you put in by accident in The Girl With All The Gifts... <laughs> thinking why didn't I put this little thing in you know like this other thing that maybe they could have found in there or did you ever come across something that you thought I really want to do that but it doesn't fit with what happens later so I can't yes yes <laughs> <laughs> several times in the course of the story and, and uh, at one point um, uh, Jenny Hill said uh, another my, my little brown editor said maybe it shouldn't be the, the Rosalind Franklin maybe it should be the other one because there were two labs yeah. there's also the Charles Darwin wouldn't it be so much easier <laughs> to just make it be the Charles Darwin I said yeah it would but then you, you know, enjoy the challenge I've set myself this task now well I, I, <laughs> it, it wasn't I mean yes I guess that's part of it but the other part of it was I wanted this book even though you can read it without having read Girl with All the Gifts yeah. and it still makes sense I wanted it kind of to be haunted by the yeah. girl with all the gifts. I wanted people to sort of keep on coming across things Noticing that made things them think, giving them brownie yeah. points, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it meant a lot to me that it should be um, the Rosalind Franklin and that it should end with the Rosalind Franklin arriving at the point where it's found in Girl with All the Gifts. But, but the, by the time you get there, things that you think you understood from that first story kind of mean something different. Mm -hmm. um, so it delivers what you expect, but it delivers it hopefully in a way that you don't expect. Um, but yes, there were, there were so many things that, that became sort of minor irritants, like you know, the degree of damage to the engine, the music and where the, where the music was when they found it, um, the body, of course, yes. um, all of those things. But um, I, th I, think, I, think, I think I made it work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I have to say, I haven't finished reading it. I'm, I'm reading it at the moment, and I'm really, really enjoying it. And I think what's fun as well is that this would also make a great film. Like, I mean, it's in the same... I think... It, are, we, are we talking about that kind of thing yet, or not yet? We did talk about it, because um, mm. I'm, still, I'm still working with Colin and Cammy on a number of things. Mm. But um, it, didn't, it didn't come to anything, partly because the timescale in the novel and the timescale in the movie are a little bit different. Okay. We, we set the novel, I set the novel, um, 20 years after the, the sort of the breakdown, after yeah. the collapse of society. Um, Colm decided um, in the movie, we, 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 just, we started sort of having sort of hard-headed discussions about canned goods and things like that. Okay. Um, and Colm said 10 years. 10 years is probably the cutoff. Okay. 10 to 12. So, around, so Melanie would have been born during the events of the breakdown. Uh, and in that movie timeline, there's there's kind of no room for the events of Boy on the Bridge to happen mm. um, because some of the kids are already grown up, but it's many years before mm. Girl with All the Gifts. So we didn't do it. We talked about a different a different prequel, um, which would have taken place around about the breakdown, and it would have been the story of how Cordyceps got into the world. Well, that would be really fascinating. Which we might still do, mm. but um, at the moment we're working on other things. Okay. Well, that sounds really cool because that would be like 
Girl with all the me- girl with all the gifts meets Dave the Triffids or something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, kind of, it, it's, possibly. <laughs> I mean, Wind- Wyndham is definitely uh, yeah. is definitely one of the inspirations. Well, I was going to say, who who were your favourite writers when you were like growing up? I, I, I loved Wyndham. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave the Triffids, Chrysalids, uh, Midwich Cuckoos were sort of had a huge impact on me. And I think it's difficult to do any kind of post-apocalyptic story in without a British him, setting without yeah. without him sort of. Um, sort of looming up in your in your rearview mirror um other writers that i loved growing up i mean my 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 first my first uh, addiction as far as fantasy goes was enid blyton mm. there were two series of books that she did the faraway tree and yeah. the wishing chair and they were the first fantasies i'd ever read i'd never come across the word but that's what they were and i just mainlined them i loved them so much i read them until the books fell apart um as i got older i started to read american comics a lot um the superhero books that DC and Marvel were bringing out, and that sort of fed the addiction. Then in my teens, I discovered Michael Moorcock, the Eternal Champion books. Shortly after that, I started reading Roger Zelazny, Mervyn Peake, Ashley Le Guin. And there was a time when I wrote only sort of sci-fi in, a, in Ashley Le Guin, in an early Ashley Le Guin sort of mould. I wasn't very good at it. Um, but they were all sort of, um, they were all big influences on me. I think that's what writers do there at the beginning, isn't it? Like, the first book, book inverted commas, you can't see I'm doing the inverted commas, uh, that I wrote was a rip-off, basically, of Louise Renison's um, diaries that she used to write for Georgia Nicholson, Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, like, really, you know, it, it was really bad. This book that I wrote when I was 16, it was called Life's a Bowl of Cherries, and it was terrible. But you think, I mean, at the time, they're just, this is such a good way of playing with things and like fan fiction and stuff like that playing with characters who already exist yeah, and seeing yeah. what you can do with them and learning about structure and how you can take things I think it's really I think it's good I mean we take the piss out of our earlier writing selves but you've got to start somewhere yeah and I think I think you do start you, you do find your own voice by playing with other people's voices so, yeah, you, yeah. you start by cross-dressing uh, yeah. I mean if you look at my early comic work mm. um, I mean I, th- I think the, th- the three big sort of formative influences on my comics writing were um, Neil Gaiman Grant Morrison and Alan Moore mm. um, and of the three Neil Neil Gaiman is, is by far the biggest um, Lucifer structurally is absolutely stolen mm. from, from Sandman because I looked at Sandman and I thought that is such a great way to write a, yeah. an ongoing monthly book you know to do these um, long arcs alternating with the one-offs and the one-offs seeming to be digressions but actually coming back into the main story in unexpected ways um, so that you end up after 75 issues with this this massive mythological construct I just thought well, why would you not want to do that if you could and so yeah in Lucifer that's exactly what I did I well, just exactly. took that model I find it like I find it so interesting all a question that I guess asked so many times and I don't know if you get asked this too is do you ever worry that what you read is going to influence your voice and change how you write and I'm just like isn't that what writing is obviously not in a I'm going to really steal everything and you know change a few words whatever that's not that but pollinating right you, yeah, you take yes. everything in and then you like spit it back out again hopefully in, in, in an eloquent kind of way but anything that happens in your life is going to influence your writing and anything you read is going to influence your writing in one form or another and I think the more you read the better you are at being a writer and when I meet people like writers who say they don't read it kind of blows my mind slightly um, yeah, that, that, that's, there's something a little bit grotesque about that. Um, but yeah, I guess things work differently for different people. But yeah, the thought of 
of worrying about you would just never stop worrying if you like were reading a book constantly and thinking I mustn't put this in my own book oh my goodness there's a moment in Girl with All the Gifts where that argument um, surfaces between Parks and um, Justin um, remind me pa- pa- Parks walks into the into the classroom and Justin is reading the class a story from Winnie the Pooh mm. and it's a story about heffalumps and woozles um, where, where uh, Pooh and Piglet are hunting and they keep walking around the tree and they keep on seeing their own footsteps but uh, footprints and, and um, misinterpreting them as monsters, as, as, as dangerous animals. Yeah. Um, and Parks is, is contemptuous and mm. says, you know, why, why are you reading them this? And, and Justin O says there has to be input so there can be output. Oh, yes, yes, And he that. says, you, you, mean, you, mean, you mean facts? And she says, no, I mean ideas. Yeah. And he scornfully says, yeah, there's plenty of world-class ideas in Winnie the Pooh. Mm. Um, and, you know, she doesn't actually sort of respond to that, but she doesn't need to. I mean, the, the, the reader knows that he's talking out of his arse. You know, yeah. that, that, um, and the implication also that she shouldn't be reading stories to them at all because they can't process them in the yeah. same way. I mean, even the girl with all the gifts, it's it comes from or has elements of um, Pandora in it right absolutely that's the myth that she reads the children of unleashing all this horror into the world um and how pandora slams the lid back on the jar and retains hope yeah it's beautiful and it's 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 very much a story about just like the unwritten which i was writing at at the same time which i was finishing off at the same time it's a story about the importance of story it's a Mm. story about why story matters yeah you know melanie knows nothing of the world because she's not been allowed to see the world but she has been exposed through just to know she's been exposed to these great stories yeah and she's built a kind of model in her mind of how the world works and i think we all do that yeah and to some extent i mean (coughs) the bad guys in the book the ones who are villainizing these children have linked a narrative themselves like together that this is the story that these children are bad and we have to keep them in because if that story wasn't there they would feel terrible about what they were doing absolutely right? and yeah. that, that, coming around in a big circle back to the movie um, mm. one of the things that, that I put into the movie because I was still thinking about it after the novel had come out that final sequence where Melanie gets to argue with Corbo about her human status mm. and says you know oh, do you still think that this is just mimicry of human behavior and Corbel has to say, no, okay, you're, I, I, I accept you're alive, you're human. And it kind of destroys her. Having to admit that means having to admit that she spent the last 10 years of her life dissecting children. Yeah. She has to admit, okay, you're not a monster. The corollary of that is, I'm I'm, I must be the monster. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just staring into space now thinking <laughs> about this. No, it's, I just think it's fantastic. And I'm really, really excited to read the rest of this book. And we're going to have to wrap up, I think, because we've been talking quite a while. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Well, thank you, Jim. Many thanks to Mike for having a chat with me about his books. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode of Books with Jen. If you would like to listen to previous episodes, as I said, you can head over to www.jen-campbell.com forward slash podcast and you can find all of the previous episodes there as well. I hope you guys are having a good week and I will speak to you very soon. Lots of books, love. Bye.